Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The position of BLM director is surely among the most important positions uh, for sportsmen for a variety of reasons. And having someone who has walked the walk, someone who has worn out some boot leather in the field and... Uh, you know, the fair chase of game and someone who spent some time on a river with a rod in their hand throughout their life is an invaluable asset. And Tracy Stone Manning brings those assets to the table. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle. Today we have a special edition podcast running on our not normal time because we have a special topic. We're going to give our listeners a look into the Bureau of Land Management, or the BLM as it's known in the West. And for folks who don't know, the BLM manages nearly 250 million surface acres in the United States, and that's one in every 10 acres of the United States. They also manage the federal onshore mineral estate and special designation areas like national monuments and national conservation areas at times. And... In the West, they manage huge swaths of landscapes that are all well-known and well-traveled, you know, by thousands of hunters and anglers each year. And they're very literally home to some of the best hunting and fishing on the planet. And so we know some folks don't know how the BLM operates, so we thought it'd be a good thing to bring on some experts with a wide range of experiences to talk about what they do. So the folks on this podcast, including myself, also have many years of experience working with the person, Tracy Stone Manning, who has been nominated by the Biden administration to lead the BLM. So today, we're going to cover how the BLM works, why it matters to hunters and anglers, and other public lands users, our experiences working with Tracy Stone Manning, and what we hope this agency might accomplish during this administration. So with that, I'm going to welcome our guests. So first, we have Kathy Hadley. Kathy is a 30-plus year resident of Montana a devout and lifelong hunter and angler, rancher and conservationist. She has served as president of both the National Wildlife Federation and the Montana Wildlife Federation Board of Directors. Kathy recently retired from her role as the executive director at the National Center for Appropriate Technology. And she's one of my favorite people. She's also an Artemis co-founder. And so I'm really happy to have her today. How's it going today, Kathy? Great, thanks so much, Aaron. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad to have you. Next, we're going to jump over to Jess Peterson. Jess is also a Montana resident over near Billings, and he's an expert on agricultural and grazing issues. 
And for the past 20 years or so, he's worked on agriculture, natural resource, and development policies across the West for organizations like the U.S. Cattlemen's Association and the Society for Range Management. And he currently works with the policy firm Western Skies Strategies and serves on the Billings, Montana Chamber of Commerce. How's it going today, Jess? Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for coming. Uh, and last but not least, we have Gaspar Paracone. Gaspar is a fourth-generation, lifelong Coloradan and a dedicated sportsman. Gaspar and I have worked together on many hunting and angling policy issues over the past dozen years or so here in Colorado. And I know him as one of the most respected sporting policy voices in Colorado and, and beyond, really. He served as a wildlife commissioner here in Colorado and as the legislative program director for the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. And he currently works on a wide range of natural resource and policy issues as a partner at the firm Freestone Strategies. What's going on, Gaspar? Thanks for having me on, Aaron. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. And dang, that was uh, that took a bit. But uh, I wanted our listeners to to understand, <laughs> you know, the depth of experience we have here. And uh, it's quite a crew, and we're lucky to have y'all. For so, thanks for being here. And you know. First, we usually start my podcast with what we've all been doing outside, but that might take a while in this case. So we're just going to start with a good hunting story. And Kathy has graciously volunteered uh, to do that. And she's hunted extensively on BLM lands. So I'm going to ask her maybe about a cool memory on BLM lands hunting and just, you know, what that type of landscape we're talking about. You know, give us, set the scene for us, Kathy. All right, Aaron. Um, this is a hunting story when I first started big game hunting and uh, my first or second year hunting antelope. And uh, my husband and I have two boys at the time and part of our recreation or most of our recreation was hunting, fishing and camping. And so we decided to go out to Eastern Montana, well, Central Montana, around Two Dot, Montana, Harlowton, Montana, and hunt BLM land for an antelope whose I had drawn a tag for. So away we went, um, made camp, and the kids were pretty young. They were about four and eight years old, but they were good hikers. And we hiked for, it seemed like, hours before we finally were, saw some antelope off in the distance. And the land was really cut up. It had a lot of gullies and hills, lots of sagebrush. And um, we decided this little herd of antelope would be something that we would sneak up on. Well, it's not very easy to sneak up an antelope with two little kids and two adults. So as we got within about 500 yards, we decided my husband would keep the boys and I would go on my own. And my husband had been my teacher for learning how to hunt for big game. And he gave me a bunch of rules to follow at the time. And one of the rules he taught me was, if you're hunting a, a, a deer or an elk or an antelope and they're coming towards you, don't shoot. Don't ever shoot until they get close and stop and then shoot. Well, I did my stalk and got behind a, a big dirt uh, gully with just my lying on the ground prone, which I knew was the stablest that I could do and what I desperately needed because I had butterflies in my stomach and I had never killed an antelope before and I was incredibly excited and my rifle was shaking and I was shaking and I saw this antelope and it was coming right towards me and he came and he came and then he came some more and I just stayed on the ground as shaking, but I knew the antelope couldn't see me shaking, but I sure felt like I was gonna come apart. And finally <laughs> that antelope, which I know now was less than a hundred yards away from me, disappeared. He was gone. And what I didn't know in front of me was a great big drop off in the ground. And there was a, place where that antelope could go and go completely by me for a quarter of a mile. So I kept waiting and waiting and waiting and no antelope, no antelope at all. 
And finally, I got up on my knees and I crawled over to look down and there was no antelope. And then I looked off into the distance and there they were. Well, I came back to my husband and the boys and they all looked at me like, what the hell did you just do? Sorry. Um, and they wondered why I hadn't shot. And I looked at my husband very defensively and I said, well, you told me, dear, never to shoot an animal if it's coming towards you. You just keep let them come because you'll make a better shot. And he said, for God's sakes, Kathy, he was less than 50 yards away from you and you didn't shoot. So I learned a really good lesson that day about um, common sense and understanding the geography and the landscape that you're in. And um, I went on to continue to hunt um, that uh, area with my family. And ultimately we did score, but it was tense for a little while with my husband who felt that I really hadn't learned my lesson. So maybe that's a goofy hunting story, but honestly that lesson of <laughs> paying attention to the critter that you're stalking and what the local circumstances are has stuck with me for 30 years. So there you have it. Well, thanks, Kathy. There's a lot of, uh, you know, what some call the speed goats out there on the BLM land. So that's a good segue to, uh, to talking about what we're going to talk about today. And I know you've, you've spent, you know, thousands of days in the field at this point, and I've seen some of your awesome photos all around the place, fishing and hunting and everything. So we know that, uh, you have some, some more good stories and maybe even some that will, will help us talk some more about the BLM here. Um, Let's jump in a little bit to how the BLM operates. I think, you know, some people don't know, especially folks who maybe live out east, they're not familiar with what the BLM is supposed to do. And I'm going to start with Gaspar here, but I want Kathy and Jess to jump in as they want. Um, so the BLM's mission is to sustain the health, diversity, and productivity of public lands for the use and enjoyment of present and future generations. And they also have what is known as a multiple use mandate. So Gaspar, let's start there. Give folks a sense of what the heck that means. And, you know, particularly from a hunting and angling standpoint, if you would. Yeah, you bet. I mean, look, if you're a hunter or an angler, our BLM lands are just simply invaluable, right? I, they manage 43 million acres of habitat, uh, of elk habitat. I think like 130 some odd acres of mule deer habitat. Got 130,000 acres of fishable rivers and streams. And, you know, it, it's a haven. Um, but I think what really makes the BLM special, particularly to the, the hunting and angling industry, is um, that unless specified is closed, those lands are open, which means that anybody with a hunting or fishing license valid in their state effectively has their own private land to venture out to in, in the, you know, pursuit of big game or, or trout fishing. Um, it, it's just... It, it's what makes uh, American hunting uh, distinct from every other country in the world is our shared ownership of, of public lands. And so, you know, the, the BLM um, has a long history of, of management. And at times, I think it has been certainly more advantageous for the hunting community than others. But, uh, you know, it was officially formed in 1946, I believe. And um, you articulated their mission clearly, Aaron. I, I think what... Uh, layered on top of that really makes the BLM interesting is this concept of, of multiple use. Um, and it is, it, it's as it sounds. Uh, for purpose of policy development around public lands management, uh, it means simply public lands have a, a variety of resources and use, uses. Um, those resources, of course, include things like forage and timber, oil and gas, minerals. Um, and then the other side of the coin, of course, is the uses. We think of things like grazing, recreation, mining, hunting, and fishing as the uses. And the, the mandate effectively uh, requires that all of these um, resources and uses be considered and balanced with one another, meaning that one particular use uh, or, or resource isn't prioritized um, unsubstantially uh, over the others. Um, now, on face value, that sounds pretty straightforward, of course, but I, I think, you know, at day's end, like all federal agencies, they are responsible to the people and where you stand very much depends on where you sit in all scenarios. And so the the role of the BLM and its director 
is to, at least in my opinion, to find an equitable balance between all of those uses and prioritize those resources, not just for this generation, but in a manner that will ensure that the same resources and uses will be around for the next generation as well. Um, so that's the overarching mandate. Of course, as is always the case with federal law, there are a host of um, regulations, uh, court cases, um, subsequent laws that layer into what in, you know ultimately becomes the the guiding um, parameters of the development of BLM policy. But um, it's a big job that they have. It's incredibly important to a wide variety of people, and it's no easy task. Um, which is why I think that the position needs to be filled by somebody uh, capable and qualified. Yeah, that's a good answer. There's a lot going on in BLM lands. Um, that that multiple use mandate is is very tricky. Sometimes those things conflict with one another. And how do you do that? You know, how do you work that out? What do you think the top issues that you know sportsmen and women should be paying attention to with respect to the BLM? Um, are right now, you know, especially considering a new administration? Yeah, well, uh, again, you know, I I think there's a myriad answers to this question. And, um, you know, I'm going to come at this through the lens of the the hook and bullet community. But from my perspective, I think there are three things that the the sportsmen and sportswomen community has an eye on under the new administration. Um, Restoration, access, and partnerships uh, come to mind as probably the top three uh, yeah, in restoration, I think that's you know, putting people to work on our public lands um, to attach uh, or attack sure. problems like cheatgrass, for example, right? Uh, multiple benefit there, good for farmers, good for ranchers, good for sportsmen, good for wildlife. So that kind of collective restoration effort, um, it, you know, I think is very much top of mind. Um, what always rises to the top in our community, of course, is access. Um, and that, you know, may be specific to the sportsman community, but I think more broadly, perhaps even to the outdoor recreation community as well. And, uh, you know, I think what we need to focus on in that arena is working to make sure that LWCF dollars find their way to the ground um, in a manner that does provide access, particularly in opening up um, those lands that are owned by the federal government but are completely surrounded by private land and are effectively landlocked. Uh, The land and water conservation funds, which, you know, of course, just recently were permanently reauthorized and fully funded, um, do have a condition that makes them available to increasing access for hunting and angling opportunity. And the next step of that equation is to uh, ensure that they do find their way to the ground and in a manner that increases access for all. And then third, and I think this um, is a standard that, you know, should span every administration, uh, and that is good partnerships. Understanding that, um, you know, work requires partnership, not just on management prescriptions, but also, um, you know, in a cooperative manner, developing the resource management plans. Uh, landowners and, and sportsmen and, and others um, need to play a role in this. And um, I have always been a, a fan of the bottom-up approach. Um, you know, we have witnessed previous administrations who issued directives to the BLM in a very top-down fashion and in a manner that priorita- prioritizes one particular use over others. And um, I've been of the opinion that uh, effective resource management and, and uh, effective um, public land use uh, warrants, at least a degree of bottom-up approach that reflects the interest and the values and the voices of not only the the local land management uh, personnel, but also the the voices of that community and the interests of that community. So I anticipate that this new administration will uh, offer a keen eye to all three of those issues. And, um, you know, they are very much a priority for many of us in the, the sportsman community. Thanks, Gaspar. That's a good, quick synopsis. And uh, anything you you want to add, Kathy or Jess? I mean, I think I think that was a good one. But feel free to jump in there. Well, Jess, yeah, so I'll just uh, jump in, and I think Gaspar covered it extremely well. And it's just multi-use comes out time and time again. And anytime you have multi-use, it means you have various stakeholders. And not choosing one, we we're all we're all susceptible to our biases, right? And so not falling into that rut and and looking at it from a holistic perspective across the board, energy, 
grazing, multi-use, and all the elements that, that Gaspar's uh, outlined and, and Kathy and others are so, so familiar and all your listeners. I mean, you all know, and I think the thing that's about BLM is it holds a special place in all of our hearts in so many ways. And, and so being able to have somebody step in that role that is, is sat in those conversations, interact in those conversations with folks with direct stakeholders. And what I really am impressed and excited about what is we're talking about here with this potential, uh, this nomination coming forward is uh, someone that's, uh, that, that literally wants to see the agency, the outcome, the multi-use be a win-win all around. And, and I, I don't want to say that anyone else has ever came into this position with a, with a, with a direct bias of, 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 of some you know, element of, of the BLM they'd like to see done. This, this individual that we're, we're talking about, Tracy Stone Manning, there's this, there sees the big picture, has been a part of it for a better part of her career, and then will come back to a community. Uh, we all know when, when she's done with this position, she'll come right back to a community, and we know she'll be right back out on those lands and enjoying them and working with the folks. So again, it's not easy to, you know, the management plans that you set forth within the BLM, uh, you're, you're updating those. Uh, you have to have stakeholder input. You have a lot of folks out on the land. And so when you make those updates, when, when, you, when you work through those regulatory uh, programs, it's difficult. And so having someone that knows that from day one and says, how do we bring this multi-use all together? In addition to, uh, you know, you have some of the finest folks working at the Bureau of Land Management and having someone that from day one can communicate with them, uh, make it very clear as to what, what priorities and how their movement. Uh, these agencies, keep in mind, they, they have a leadership position, but they're all out in the field. And so how you communicate with those throughout the field offices. And, and each one of them has a unique uh, unique set of opportunities, uh, problems, challenges, and having someone that says, okay, where, where, how, how are things working and how we get that moving? There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to make these lands that we all enjoy and hold in our hearts, uh, to make them function. And for us, even the economics, uh, as it works from a grazing side, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in these field offices that links right back to leadership being committed to both taking that input and applying it and then coordinating the personnel. And that's why I'm very excited to be having the conversation we are here. You almost jumped the gun on me. I mean, I was going to ask you directly a little bit later, kind of what, uh, <laughs> what you had to say about that, but uh, <laughs> we'll get back to that. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. Cause it, it will just segue over to you, Jess, because, you know, obviously we have all these uses, all these folks, the diverging viewpoints, you know, to manage on BLM lands. And that's, that's a tough task. I mean, we just outlined some of it, you know, anybody would have, have uh, some challenges there, but let's think about that from a perspective of one of the users, right? You're intimately familiar with what that means for, for grazing permittees, for instance, on public lands and BLM lands. Give us a sense of how that multiple use mandate kind of looks for a permittee and, and what kind of considerations there has to be. Well, first off, it's, it's an incredible partnership. That permittee uh, has the opportunity to, to graze on public lands. And I can tell you on behalf of, the, uh, of livestock producers that, that graze, uh, we, we, we are so appreciative of that opportunity. But it also comes with responsibility for that permittee. Uh, waters, fences, uh, management of the livestock, management of any of the, the animals, the predators around there. Uh, and of course, the ups and downs we're seeing right now, this cattle market, we're, uh, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy out there. And so economics uh, plays a big role in it. Weather, we all know uh, what the West looks like, uh, certain parts, uh, Nevada, Utah, Montana, I mean, you name it, Wyoming, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're in drought, severe drought conditions in Nevada and Utah, and we're, we're right on the brink uh, along these other states. So again, that all plays into uh, how you're going to be turning out your cattle and how that communication with, with, with BLM uh, plays out as to what, 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 what number of, uh, uh, you know, how, what, what's your AUMs looking like. And so again, you, you have an incredible partnership. These are public lands. But these permittees, these grazers, there's so much responsibility, so much stewardship, so much, so much management uh, that goes into it. And again, having leadership that communicate both from headquarters, the field offices, the staff and personnel, you want that relationship, whether it's someone that's in the outdoor community to have an incredible relationship with BLM staff and personnel, same with the ranching and grazing community. And I can tell you, and I'll say this directly to anyone. 
90% of our conflict or more comes from some breakdown in communication. Communication is key with BLM. You've got to have someone in there that can communicate with all the stakeholders. And when ranchers nine times out of 10 will say, yeah, we're, we're just having a communication issue. We're, we're, we're walking through this. We're, we're trying to get the same page. And when you can connect on that communication, this agency can really coordinate quite well. Thanks, Jess. That gives us a good sense. Maybe, maybe a little bit about, so from any of you, what does that you know, look like when you know, either conflicts happen or, or some of the overlap with other use are out there. What was the BLM do about that? Give us, give us some examples of how that might work. Anyone want to jump in on that one? <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't, don't turn to the token cowboy to start talking about how to deal with conflict because that's where we're all about. All you know, I think understanding understanding that stewardship and management can be rewarded, understanding having that relationship with your BLM grazing special grazing staff uh, saying, you know, here, here's, here's our plan and understanding, you know, BLM has to follow certain guidance, but, but sitting down and, and talking about uh, how we can complement grazing can complement uh, 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 these, these, these just wildfires that are burning out of control with, regards to invasives that are, that are in the wrong places, wrong time. And how can we do prescribed uh, grazing, maybe, you know, prescribed burns and the like there too, but, but being able to address uh, your, your, your wildfire issues, uh, being able to complement the, the species, the habitat. Uh, we've got some pretty important uh, critters and species uh, out there on these lands. How can livestock uh, complement uh, those habitat? And I think we've came a long ways and the reason is, is folks just got in the room and said, we can, we can do this. We all care about these working lands and, and, and putting them together and not trying to, you know, not putting one over the other, prioritizing whether it's cattle get priority over the species or species prioritizing. We can both uh, cohabitate on these working lands if we, if we can communicate. And I think that's a lot of times where the conflict comes in, where it looks like someone's prioritizing, and Gaspar touched on this a little bit, if it looks like you're prioritizing one of the BLM priorities over the other, you start getting folks uncomfortable. So really pl uh, playing in on that multi-use, being very clear about here's what you're grazing, here's what your allotment is going to be, uh, here's the monitoring we're seeing, here's the here's here's the scientific trends, the, 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 the stubble height and all those types of pieces. If you're very clear on that, it comes together. And I know it sounds kind of warm and fuzzy when we're talking about it on a podcast, but it means getting out and doing stakeholder meetings. Uh, having your folks uh, collaborate, just like we're having here this evening uh, or on, on the podcast and, and working that out. So I, it, it, but you have to have a hands-on and I don't want to talk about what's gone on previously, but if you lose track of that communication to your people in the countryside and your staff, it, it can be a struggle. I, I think Jess brings up a good point. You know, I mean, when you think back to the original concept of federal land designation in the days of Theodore Roosevelt, I, you know, they were probably not of the mindset that in the year 2021, where I think we are kind of facing a new paradigm of public land management, that there would, in fact, be a supply and demand problem to some degree. And I'll be the first to say, I, I think there's room for everybody on the force. I think they, you know, were set up and intended uh, in that manner. But um, we are at a unique point in history where uh, these particular uses are overlapping with one another more than um, they historically have. And, you know, the inevitable outcome of that is some degree of concern and conflict amongst the uses. And so I think, you know, it, what will be critical moving forward is to have leadership that takes stock of the fact that, you know, outdoor recreation in America is exploding. We have, um, you know, a, a long and positive history of public land grazing. Of course, you know, oil and gas development is no stranger to public land as well. And all of these particular uses of the resources are starting to overlap in a manner that re that requires, I think, new thinking about what resource management and travel management plans look like. And, yeah. you know, in the development of those plans, we can no longer think about them as isolated and siloed activities, but how they can um, connect with one another in a way that reduces conflict. And those are difficult discussions to have. Um, I think the starting point has got to be that the promotion of one doesn't come at the expense of another. Um, if we all start from that perspective, I think it lends itself to not only community partnership in developing these plans, 
but also a mutual understanding on the back end of why the policy was developed in the manner that it was. And um, yeah, like I said, we, we have witnessed uh, over the long history of the BLM moments um, or periods of time rather where there were uh, prioritized interests. And um, I, I think, you know, to be an effective BLM manage, manager, you, you have to take stock of of all of these multiple use standards and um, the, the difficulty in doing that effectively is, uh, you know, to Jess's point, having the discussions and putting together plans and policies that um, reflect the, the, the multiple use standard of BLM and, uh, you know, results in, in products that are developed with those parties in the room. Sure. Well, you know, another interesting part of this, and, and we just talked about the difficulty of the job already, is that the BLM has not had a, a true director uh, since, since 2017. The Senate confirms the BLM director. Um, we haven't had a Senate confirmed BLM director. There was kind of an acting director, perhaps in some maybe not so uh, legal ways during, during the past handful of years. But, you know, it's an agency that has more than 10,000 employees, manages, you know, 250 million acres, things like oil, gas, grazing, timber management. You know, what think, let's think about some of the impacts of not having a director for the last four years. And Gaspar, I'll start with you again. Um, just tell us, what is that? What's the result been of that? Well, I think anybody who's participated in any sort of BLM activity recognizes that things fall through the cracks when there isn't leadership at the helm. Um, that's not a knock on the tremendous staff and agency personnel that make up the division, but ultimately the buck has got to stop somewhere. And having a vacancy um, in a post like the BLM has caused all sorts of concerns. I mean, first and foremost, um, the agency is unable to evolve and adapt with the times and the needs. You know, so many of these activities require permits and, you know, consequently that requires somebody to approve those permits and, you know, the delay and everything from, you know, grazing to outfitting um, has, has been really problematic. But I, I think more prominently, and, you know, again, speaking through the lens of the, the hook and bullet community here, is we are w witnessing, uh, you know, in certain areas, some degradation of the, of the resource. And, um, you know, it's an unfortunate reality that um, a lot of the plans that are in place for the BLM areas um, are greatly outdated. Um, and again, not a knock on the staff, but I think it's time to revisit um, many of these resource management plans and update them to accommodate and reflect the interests and desires of the users of those particular parcels um, in a 21st century standard. Um, the, the uses and the practices have evolved, the desires and interests of uh, the constituents have evolved, and um, you know, you, you've got to have the personnel in place to keep the agency up to pace with the, the needs and the demands of their customers. And it, it may be a bit too simplistic to think of the BLM as a, you know, customer service led agency. But I think, you know, from the public's perspective, that's the expectation. And um, right or wrong, uh, that's something that the, you know, the BLM leadership needs to contend with. And uh, you know, to your point, Aaron, not having somebody there to answer those questions um, in a definitive manner and to offer direction to staff to undertake these needed changes results in, you know, um, things falling further and further behind. Yeah, I think that's a natural result, I guess. Um, we've seen a little bit of an exodus. We had a lot of career staffers that uh, chose to to leave instead of uh, relocate out to Grand Junction. Uh, we've seen some things fall by the wayside and it's, it's, it's too bad. And, and, you know, I remember, and you, you guys all probably remember when I was first getting into conservation policy and so on, you know, in the nineties and, and even learning about it prior to that working as like a career forest service person or a BLM service person, that was kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, like if you've been there for 20 years or something, you were well-respected. There wasn't, you know, pe people in the community, people stayed in communities for longer. There wasn't as much movement, you know, people around different offices. And so I think there's just kind of a general need to both, you know, revamp the morale and the structure and activities that, that happen in the BLM. 
When I think about the last four years without having a director in charge and things falling through the cracks, that absolutely has happened. And I think, you know, one of the tools the BLM uses to, to do uh, all of their work on the landscape is resource management plans. And those plans are really important. And lots of people spend time preparing the BLM staff, preparing the plans. And it talks about how landscapes are gonna be managed for all the competing interests over time. And um, during the last four years, we had a number of new resource management plans come out of the agency, but because the agency didn't have a director, it ended up in litigation. So, so if you're a livestock producer with a grazing permit or an outfitter, all of a sudden you don't know what the rules are anymore because resource management plans are no longer valid. And I think that's uh, a huge issue and is one of the reasons that we need to get a director in there that's qualified and capable and experienced to help bring back some type of normal relationship Great that point. BLM yeah. has with all the different users on the landscape. Yeah, I just, this is Jess, I think Kathy hit the nail on the head. I mean, you, you put a lot of time, energy, and effort to putting these plans together, you, you know, comments, listening sessions, interactions, and and not being able to advance. As I go, a lot of the conflict comes back from communication. And if you don't clear that, uh, present that, and then get your field offices. And I think you touched upon something. I, I am always, and of course, I'm uh, to say I'm biased is, is an understatement because I get to work with some of the finest uh, folks around and that are, th those are the Forest Service uh, BLM uh, staff and personnel. They're incredible individuals and they are so committed. And so to have leadership that that uh, values their contributions, values what, what they know, like you just referenced, I think you made a great point. How do we how do we keep this working class, working group of professionals so, so knowledgeable? I mean, the science, the research, even just, I mean, you're talking about BLM, I think, you look about the diversity of, 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 of habitat, of lands, of regions. Uh, yes, there's similarity, but there's stark contrast in, in so many ways. And so having that institutional knowledge and being able to utilize that is, is, is just incredible. So I, I guess uh, one thing that I want to get clear is, again, just what Kathy just noted, but then also just getting excited and enthused about how we retain the talent we have and get out there and start recruiting. I mean, we have such an opportunity to recruit from our land grant universities, our, our various uh, range programs and whatnot. But we also have the opportunity to start looking at uh, urban areas and, and bringing some of those folks in. And how do we train and get, you know, that diversity of management and personnel, I think, strengthens BLM across the board. So, again, I, I'm just very bullish on the future. If we have that leadership that can work in the fashion we're talking about here. Thanks, Jess. I think, yeah, those are good points. And it, like we've said a, a bunch here, it's it's such a tough job. You need to have the ducks in a row, right? I mean, it, there's so much going on. So I think that's a, that's a good segue to what we're going to talk about next as well. And that's, you know, we have a nominee now and, and she's going to go before the Senate and her name's Tracy Stone Manning. We've all known Tracy for, for years now. We've seen her work sometimes in some pretty tough circumstances. You know, she has an extensive background working with folks and leading natural resource issues and is really well-respected across party lines and, and different natural resource user groups. But I want to give our listeners some examples of exactly what that looks like. And Kathy, I want to start with you because you've known Tracy probably longer than any of us. And in the, in the mid, early mid-2000s, she was the executive director of the Clark Fork Coalition, which is a a nonprofit in Western Montana, whose main charge at the time was cleaning up the Superfund site uh, down below the the big mine in Butte in Anaconda. You know, as a result of that legacy in the Upper Clark Fork River, and she led some really amazing work there. And I'm just hoping maybe you can give us a look into that issue and how Tracy specifically led that process. Sure, um, the Clark Fork River uh, is. I live on the Clark Fork River, and just to sort of set the story up for your listeners, 
Um, we're located in southwest Montana, and there were two copper mining and smelting towns called Butte and Anaconda, located about 30 miles upstream from the headwaters of the Clark Fork River. And the Clark Fork River starts and then travels about 120 miles northwest to Missoula, Montana. And at Missoula, there is a, there was a dam called the Milltown Dam. And in 1908, there was a massive flood in this area, which washed toxic mine tailings throughout the Upper River riparian areas downstream to the Milltown Dam and the reservoir. And the reservoir captured about six to seven million cubic yards of these sediments that were all toxic. Um, the communities close to the Milltown Dam, Bonner and Milltown, the people who lived in the communities when the Superfund investigation started, they found out that their wells, their drinking domestic wells were contaminated with arsenic and other metal uh, mines, uh, toxic stuff. And that created a huge problem. So EPA is in charge of Superfund across the country. And the first thing they came up with was the idea of, well, maybe we can dredge the reservoir. But the problem was all those toxic mine tailings were seeping down into the aquifer below it, then the aquifer that provided the drinking water for the community. Well, enter the Clark Fork Coalition, which is a science-based uh, nonprofit located in Montana. And it's all about and does only one thing, and that's to preserve, protect, and maintain the Clark Fork River. Tracy was the executive director. It was a small organization at the time. And she and her staff there came up with what I call the big idea. And their big idea was, we don't want to dredge this reservoir. What, what about the idea of making a free-flowing river? Think about the economic impacts of that to the small communities and Missoula. And um, I think at first everybody thought that was a crazy idea, that it was just too big, that it wasn't politically feasible. And um, the idea, where would you take six, seven million cubic yards of toxic sediments? Well, Tracy, Tracy is a kind of person who knows how to create collaborations and partnerships. And she really worked very hard over the course of three or four years. She had to work with a local county commission in Missoula. She had to work with the communities of Bonner and Milltown. She had to work with the utility company who owned the dam and the dam, by the way, generated power for the utility company. She had to bring in the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes because they have tribal rights on the river. Then she had to work with all the federal agencies, the EPA, DEQ, or the state agencies too, uh, the National Park Service. And she had, most importantly, she had to get the entire community behind her because this was such a big lift and it would cost millions and millions of dollars. And Tracy's real strategic and she's very respectful of people coming from different places. She's a great listener and she somehow knows how to listen and digest what people are telling her and come up with ideas that meets the needs of two or three or four or five parties at the same time. But I really think she brought the stakeholders to the table. She had lots of different um, ideas on how to get the community behind her. And one of them was to create a bumper sticker called Remove the Dam and Restore the River. And after two or three or four years around Missoula, almost any parking lot, you'd see those bumper stickers because not only was the stickers good, people sort of got it, but the Clark Fork Coalition figured out if they gave, gave them away for free, more people would use them and put them on their cars. And it was a brilliant idea to take, you know, nonprofits don't have a lot of money, but by God, they produce a lot of those damn bumper stickers <laughs> and uh, it helped their cause. Ultimately, we had a Republican governor at the time and they had to get the governors okay for this. The good news is the governor was from Butte and Butte, of course, was a Superfund site too. And the governor understood Superfund complexities and the historic damage that had been created all across this basin. 
and they knew they won the war and that the dam would be removed when they got Montana's Republican governor to give, and it was, um, oh my goodness, I just forgot her name. Anyway, she gave her blessing to this idea of removing the dam. So starting in about 2005 through 2008, dam removal happened. She convinced the communities of Anaconda and Opportunity to accept the 6 million cubic yards of toxic tailings coming from Missoula back upstream to where most of the toxic pollution is, is being um, put in repositories. And all in all, it was a fantastic win for the communities, for um, conservation, and uh, for the river. And she did a, a magnificent job, and it all depended upon communication, as Jess said, and uh, developing relationships with all the stakeholders involved. She was wonderful. Yeah, Kathy, that's a good example of kind of, you know, probably similar to some of the types of challenges someone at the BLM would face, right? Working with so many different people, agencies, challenges, you know, logistics, um, you know, and I, and I would be remiss to say if I didn't say, you know, I was there the day the first bucket got dug out of that, uh, of that earthen dam that was created after the, the, the dam was taken down and, and watched the, the, the Blackfoot and the Clark Fork merged together for the first time in a hundred years. And as an angler, I was really fired up about that because it allows yeah. fish to move freely in a way they hadn't for a hundred years. It's going to improve that fishery. It's now a, I think it's a state park and it's a, it's a recreational gem, tons of fishing access re restored. Yes. It's lots yeah. of willows and braided and mm -hmm. it's, it's a cool thing now as opposed to kind of a mar on the landscape that was always looming there, uh, needing to be cleaned up. So that's a, that's a great one. And, and, you know, I think that's a testament to the kind of leadership we need. It's, it's a beautiful place now and it is a state park and, uh, it's a recreational hotspot for people around Missoula. They, they involve the community in the rebuilding and restoration of that site. And there's a rapids there now that people actually, crazy as this sounds, surf on that they created as a new recreational opportunity. But um, anyway, involving the people in the community in the restoration, that's a really important part, too, that Tracy understood. Well, this is Jess. I'll just build off what Kathy said. Just a fantastic overview of, of Tracy Stone Manning and her work and bringing folks together. I, for one, started in the conflict space with Tracy, uh, which is why it's even more notable that I'm here today as one of her loudest uh, supporters and proponents. I start out ends of a conversation. Uh, as we were working on a renewable energy project in Montana, she was in the governor's office and true to Tracy Stone Manning form, uh, our folks that I was assisting with may or may not have been uh, not following protocol appropriately and accordingly. <laughs> and, and again, it went back to communication and, and just Tracy's willingness to, you know, I, I even, I don't want to say give us a second chance. I want to speak a lot about what, what all was going on in the project rights and wrongs, but these things happen in the nature of, of, of our business, of public policy, but just her attitude, her willingness to, to, to come to uh, a solution and just to be clear in communication, being very reasonable and, and right out of the shoots, I was like, wait, I, I wasn't just, I'm starting to really be more impressed. And so uh, she had reached out later about, could we coordinate uh, more on, on addressing these uh, sage grouse management plans? And so I said, absolutely. So again, I started as this cowboy, all frustrated with this Tracy Stone Manning, what's her deal anyway, to sitting on a show here with a great deal of pride. And I've been very, a lot of conversations. I was on one here uh, yesterday, a very large uh, podcast uh, where I was, uh, you know, putting my reputation on the line, putting my best boots forward, betting that Tracy Stone Manning will do, will be a great uh, uh, colleague and 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 and, and official uh, for for livestock folks to communicate with. Again, she's not going to prioritize where anyone over. She's not going to prioritize anyone or any interest. But having that clear communication uh, is where she's coming from, and I couldn't be more excited to uh, cheer on and champion her efforts to hopefully move forward with a confirmation. Well, what do you mean, Jess? You were on a larger podcast than this? You just mic dropped him. <laughs> I was waiting for 
that, I was gonna, I was trying to figure out a nice way of saying there's no way it could be larger than this. And I was like, I was gonna get tongue twied even more. So I got busted there. I mean, it was it was a ten size, and you know, I, I apologize. I thought going on mute, Aaron. You were gonna hand it over to us, and and I was gonna guess DJ it, and I thought we we're gonna go in the wrong place real quick. So I'm glad your audio came back, and uh, again, back to you. Moderator, take now, us take us home here. <laughs> it's always fun with these, you know. And I think th- this is a good time too. I mean, you you jumped the gun a little there, Jess. Too. I was going to ask you about kind of some insights on on how ranchers perceive Tracy and you know her her leadership style with that group and what what really won them over. You know, I know you've worked with her on a few different things, and there's a couple of stories you've told me. But talk about like exactly what that looked like. Well, look, this is this isn't going to be an easy task, right? Uh, this administration, this is there's there's been priorities outlined by this Biden administration that that don't align uh, directly with a lot of our folks in in the uh, grazing and, and energy sector. That's just reality, and so you're going to need that ability to look folks in the eye. Uh, I think more than the virtual eye, I think we might be doing in person meetings at some point here. And uh, going back to that again. And what Tracy Stone Manning has the ability to do and what she's done in our instances is get on the phone with ranchers or in one case, drive to a certain part of the country. I don't want to divulge too much information to a, to a set of ranchers in a grazing district and just sit down with them on their terms in their space and just start interacting. And I remember we got the call uh, right out after that meeting. They said this, this individual, she, she came in there, she sat amongst us, she asked all these questions. She wanted to learn. She wanted to learn more about it. And they were expecting, again, something entirely different. Uh, given given her role and background and who she was affiliated with. And so again, I think it's how she she enters the room, how she engages, how she listens, and then how she presents and saying, okay, this is how we're, we're going to move forward. And that's how, uh, again, I, I uh, you know, again, I, I come from, the, from that from that conflict old cowboy that was like, by gosh, Tracy. And, and I thought, well, I had told her she was heading down. I was like, I, you know, I don't know Tracy. And, you know, I still trying to give her the rundown. She didn't need the rundown from me. She went in there and won them over. So I know we have, um, you know, folks that have uh, influence with various senators. Uh, senators and their staff are listening in here. And again, I think uh, we, I can just tell you being on the land, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm dialing in from, from Montana and, uh, we, we do have, uh, some of our lease has some BLM components within it. And, and I can tell you from being out on the land, I want someone that can sit in that con- sit in the room, have that direct conversation and, and be very clear in, in what, what the plans are and, and what the feedback is. And that's where I think we're headed. And I'm very excited about this opportunity. And I ask everyone that's out there listening, uh, uh, make make sure that that message gets relayed uh, because to say Washington gets a bit, bit, bit twisted out there, a bit, bit spun around right there is an understatement. And uh, we have an opportunity to address that and, and come together and make that very clear. Thanks, Jess. So Gaspar, we're going to swing it back to you. You've worked with Tracy on several issues ranging, you know, from balancing recreational uses on public lands to energy development issues like, you know, reclamation of, of drilling sites and bonding on federal lands. Yep. And then oil and gas development near uh, someone, something near me here, the Great Sand Dunes National Park. Can you talk a little bit about those efforts and, you know, what you learned about Tracy and her style during that? There's an undercurrent theme that's emerging, um, you know, between Kathy and Jess's discussion, and it's one that I'm going to echo as well. And I think that's just a testament to the quality of character that Tracy's displayed throughout her professional life, right? I mean, Look, it's worth noting that she's experienced in her own right. She comes from, you know, a very long and credentialed history of engagement in policy and and, and politics, frankly. And um, I, I think it will undeniably serve her well, having the degree of expertise that I think is required to do the position um, to its greatest potential. But, you know, I, I come from the, the viewpoint of what we need now and, frankly, um, what we've needed for some time is a director who can bring people together uh, from diverse backgrounds to work towards common ground. And, you know, the position of BLM director is surely among the most important positions uh, for sportsmen for a variety of reasons. And having someone who has walked the walk, someone who has worn out some boot leather in the field and, uh, you know, the fair chase of game and someone who spent some time on a river with a rod in their hand throughout their life is an invaluable asset. And Tracy Stone Manning brings those assets to the table. 
and I think we are all poised to um, reap the benefits from, uh, you know, her, her lifestyle and her past workings. And um, unlike Jess, um, I, I was impressed with Tracy from the get-go. Um, it may just have been a consequence of the mutual interest in our projects, but I, I have had the opportunity to work with her on a variety of different policy issues. And um, I think she, uh, you know, is, is very much a woman of her word. And, uh, you know, to the, to the point of communication that we've been hampering on uh, throughout this, this conversation, um, there's a lot to be said about that. And, um, but yeah, you know, a few years ago, the, the BLM announced that they were um, considering leasing thousands of acres uh, in near proximity to the, the Great da uh, Sand Dunes National Park. Um, these are oil and gas developments, um, and uh, they were looking to circumvent previous standards of public input and environmental review in this particular case. And now, look, I, I think it's important to note that uh, you know, I'm not anti-oil and gas development on public lands. Uh, I do believe that it needs to be done right and managed appropriately and properly reclaimed. Um, however, I, I'm also of the opinion that there are a few landscapes in the nation um, that embody, you know, the, the spirit of the American West more than the Great Sand Dunes National Park. Um, you know, the park is the centerpiece of the San Luis Valley, which is in southern Colorado. Uh, it, it parts the Sangre de Cristo wilderness and the Rio Grande National Forest at the valley floor. It, it's, you know, unbelievable um, elk and uh, deer habitat and winter range, and consequently, some of the uh, best hunting the state has to offer. Um, not to mention a whole host of other outdoor recreational activities that are utilized by a wide variety of folks. And, you know, what made this particular lease sale so puzzling to us was the fact that the, the local BLM field office was nearing completion of a new RMP, um, which is a comprehensive land management plan for the region. And the RMP um, ha has been in the making for the better part of a decade and included significant public input from residents and local interests. Unfortunately, um, the administration at the time opted to go forth with the lease sale under a previous RMP from 1996, which was wholly outdated and didn't reflect any of the public input or the interests of the communities surrounding this parcel of land um, at that time. And it forced the hand of the field office to offer the lease sales in a way that circumvented all of the hard work that they had put in, all of the public input and perspective um, local elected officials on down the line. And, um, you know, what I, what I was impressed most with by Tracy in this effort was her ability to cultivate um, a variety of voices from every side of the aisle and from all of the diverse backgrounds that had a stake in this game. And the goal was not, of course, outright prohibition of development, but a more thoughtful approach to the one that, you know, did reflect the voices of the local community rather than just the the corporate voices that were, um, you know, seeking a fast track permitting uh, process. So, you know, these are all of our lands and we should all have a say in how they are managed. Um, yes, we certainly need to be honest and uphold the underlying sentiment of the multiple use standards. Um, and I, this can be done, I believe, in a way that's mutually beneficial to all parties and all public land users. Um, and, you know, I, I think what she brings to the table is that understanding that um, we can, you know, rising seas raise all ships. Um, and I think she, you know, brings the character and the mentality to to offer that opportunity um, in advancing each of our particular interests um, for the benefit of all, but not at the expense of, of others. So um, like Jess said, I, I'm bullish on this um, opportunity of, of her confirmation. I think she is certainly qualified and will serve the agency well and all of its users well also. I think we're all bullish. I think <laughs> that's why we're here. But, you know, the, the interesting part of this too is we've all had unique and different experiences with Tracy. And I think that speaks to kind of the diversity of her experiences, the strength of her, her experience and the scope of her work. Um, and I think that those are the things that, you know, clearly will, will serve someone well when they're in this role, if, you know, if she is indeed confirmed. And, you know, I'm confident Tracy would be an excellent BLM director. You know, I've seen her leadership firsthand. I've seen her pragmatic approach. She listens. She's fair. I know she really likes to find outcomes that serve the, the land, the wildlife, and the people, you know, that rely on them. And that's, 
that's really what I think we're all after, right? Uh, kind of a, a public servant, really, you know, not a servant of, of any one party or, or any one, you know, special interest. We want to see somebody who, who thinks about all those issues. And I, you know, I think when someone does that, it'll be a, a big boon to the sporting community as well, because sportsmen and women have diverse points of view as well and, and, and want to see things happen in certain ways. And someone who gets that Western sensibility and, and those issues uh, is really critical. And I, and I hope the Senate sees it that way as well. Um, you know, I, I know we're running up against time here and, and I want, I want to yeah. respect you folks' time, but I'm going to, I'm going to let each of you <laughs> go, go ahead, Jess. Well, no, I didn't, I didn't want to, I just, I was just, just thinking about it as you, as you were talking about tracing that I just jumped the gun and, and jumped in there. And, you know, I've, 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 I've t- taken a few of your podcasts. I'll be taking a lot more, but <laughs> look at, look at just, just the diversity of background we have here this evening, right? I mean, Kathy's incredible background and the work that she's done. Uh, and yet you have Gaspar and I, you know, energy, grazing, livestock, and we're here, just stepping right out on a limb saying we're, we're jumping right in the middle of this. We're, we're both uh, bipartisan. We work with Republicans and Democrats alike and have constituents that, that, that speak accordingly. And, and so we willingly stepped up and said, Hey, we're, we're here and want to be part of it right out of the shoots. And so I think that's pretty impressive uh, one for national wildlife federation and you Aaron for hosting this, but also just uh, what a compliment to be in this day and age. And I don't need to tell anyone. Hopefully, they're not turning on the news or the, the 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 entertainment that plays on the cable channels. That's not news. But hopefully, they're turning on more of these podcasts, getting informed with really what's happening out there. But look at the diversity of backgrounds, and we're all here tonight, or that this podcast. And this is this is this is a person we can align with. And we have completely different backgrounds, and we're going to walk into completely different stakeholders. And oftentimes, you get, or unfortunately, when you get into administrative posts you get this echo chamber. It's like, oh, it's this group says this is our time or this group says this is our time. And you're seeing here, this is a collective, we represent a collective group of voices saying, this is a person we want to get behind and say, lead the way and bring everyone together. Communicate, collaborate for for a set of, of lands that we all love and cherish. And and even uh, it's part of our livelihood as we as we run livestock and take advantage of multiple use. So just thanks for hosting this. Uh, compliments to the speakers. Compliments to the listeners out there. And uh, let's see this thing through the finish line. Well, thanks, Jess. We'll we'll let that be your parting shot. Amen, Jess. I was just going to add to what Jess was saying. You know, there is no greater equalizer in America than our public lands, right? This concept of collective ownership is unique to this country. And, you know, I I hope that it can continue to serve as a beacon of what democracy can be when we all work together um, and, and, you know, have collective uh, respect for um, what is collectively ours. And, um, you know, I I know that is a sentiment that Tracy embodies and cares deeply about. And, um, you know, it may be a bit superficial to talk about public lands being a uniting force in this day and age of political partisanship, but it is a thing that we can hold on to and look to um, that brings us together rather than divides us. You're right on that, Gaspar. I say it all the time on this podcast, so uh, I agree. Kathy, we'll turn it to you for, for one for one last parting shot. Anything you want to say? Um, I so appreciate Gaspar and Jess and what they just said because I agree with both of them and it's been a pleasure to be in their company on a podcast. It's been great, Aaron. Um, Probably one other thing that some of your listeners may not know about Tracy is that she is an incredible outdoors woman and uh, she has a passion for our public lands like many of us do. And she's a hiker and a person who fishes and she's also a hunter and I've known her through those activities for 20 plus years and she she is a servant as someone already said and will take care of our public lands for the benefit of all people because Tracy believes all of us have to benefit together not one group or over another and that's one of the things I deeply appreciate about her so thank you Aaron Thank you, Kathy. And 
with that, we will wrap up. Um, I think we need a leader like Tracy, and uh, I hope we can, if, if any senators are listening, let's hope some senators are listening and tell them to get on the Tracy bus, get her confirmed. She's going to take us great places. She gets the job. And uh, folks like this are, are a testament to the kind of work she can do and, and the kind of way she can unite us. So thank you all for joining. Hopefully we see Tracy in that leadership role sometime soon, and, and I look forward to seeing you all in person. Thanks for joining. We are NWF Outdoors.